Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe, and in just a moment, I'll find out whose body my head has been surgically attached to this week. You see, every week, I find myself attached to another friend and movie lover, and it is then up to us to each pick a movie based on the weekly theme, watch, and discuss. And today's guest, I'm excited to introduce uh, my new friend and yours, Angela Greco. Angela, how are you doing? I'm doing as well as can be in these early days of 2021. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It's been a very hectic two weeks. Oh my gosh. It's only been two weeks. <laughs> I know, right? We're like, oh, the avalanche is over. And then it's like, oh no, there's a little trickle of snow. Is it going to happen again? <laughs> oh, I'm, I may cut this next bit out. I'm like, we're very anxious about the next few days. <laughs> ah, yes. Not to, not to bring things down, like right at the start. No, that's cool. That's that's the way it is right now. <laughs> I actually feel optimistic if we can just get through the inauguration. I yeah. do too. I, I'm feeling like, man, we have a chance. Like we can really do some stuff here if if we just like kind of keep our attention on it. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why I think the kind of movies that we're talking about this episode are are the kind of movies that I discovered. I discovered why these movies movies exist in 2020. You know, like things that kind of make you think but not too much and they're they're heavy on the sensory <laughs> uh pleasures <laughs> yeah definitely the is, well one of them in particular but you're right both of them they're like they're very um kind of almost tactile movies that we chose mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we um, know each other kind of <laughs> like loosely through um, we have a mutual friend uh how do you know stina Oh, so, okay. I mean, this is kind of cool. <laughs> uh, I lived with Stina when I first got to LA. I did not know her before that. I got there in January, 2015. And then I was like, kind of looking around and then I was looking for jobs. And then I went on this meditation retreat for a while out in the desert. Then when I got back, the friend that I had been staying with was like, you really need to go somewhere else. <laughs> and I was like, I know. So I responded to this ad on couchsurfing.org um, from a person named Stina. And then I went and looked at their apartment that day and then they were like, or the next day. And then they were like, okay, you can stay, you can stay here. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Nice. And so, yeah. And so Stina and Brendan were like these amazing first friends to have in LA. They connected me to so many people and they're so, I mean, you know them, they're like so unusually like kind and uh, generous. <laughs> Sorry, that makes all of LA sound so terrible. <laughs> no, I, I, I get you though. Cause we, we got here. I guess a little before you, me and my partner and our, our oldest daughter, we've been here since uh, 2014, mid 2014. Mm -hmm. And this place is, <laughs> it, it's not the most hospitable place for newcomers mm -mm. just because like friendships here can be so transactional. People are always like, like wanting to network friendships and everything is so spread out. Five miles might as well be in a different state sometimes. So it, yeah. it's hard to meet up with people. I met Stina and Brendan pretty early as well. My first job here was at Universal Studios during Halloween Horror Nights. They were uh, they were both zombies down at oh, the yeah. <laughs> down at the Terror that. Tram. Yeah, yeah, down at Terror Tram at the Bates Motel, and I was working there in show control. I wasn't doing the thing they're doing. I was just there to monitor lines and everything, make mm. sure people weren't smoking when they were walking through, stuff like that. <laughs> I, I was stationed next to Stina a lot. Like her, the area she was performing in is is the area I was stationed at most of the time. 
And so I met them both that way. We just, you know, talk to them on our breaks or when there's a lull in guests. Like I don't keep up with them as, as often as I should. I, I've hung out with them a couple of times, mainly because it's just LA without a car. It's hard to get around, but they are oh, very, yeah. they're very friendly people. She's always like been quick to, to reach out and, um, yeah, I wish I could just, you know, <laughs> yeah, so, so easy to talk to. Yeah. Good folks. So yeah, it is good to have like that, that friend here in the, in the early going, especially, and mm-hmm. man, it's just this LA in lockdown, like now nobody can see anybody. Yeah. So let's see, we've got our note, our note with our theme and the theme is food, glorious food. Uh, kind of cheesy, but that's what I'm going with. Yeah. And, So we're going to take just a quick break and we will come back and we will talk about the first of our two movies. Is this what I ordered? Yes, that is a risotto. It's a special recipe that my brother and I bring from Italy. But I get a side of spaghetti with this, right? Why? She likes starch. I don't know. Come on. There are no meatballs with the spaghetti? They were two brothers who came to America bearing Italy's greatest gift. To eat good food is to be close to God. I'm never sure what that means, but... It's true anyway. <laughs> they have a talent for cooking. Wait, cut the table. Now, all they need... If you give people time, they learn. This is a restaurant, not a cooking school. ...is a recipe for success. If we don't receive your payment by the end of the month, we will foreclose. What do you mean? Their only hope is a plan. Louis Prima. Louis Prima? He's a friend of mine. I make a call. He's in town next week. You cook for him. Louis Prima is coming. He's not just some guy. He's famous. Their only obstacle... Men boys is each other my brother sometimes is too um, uh, i have a younger brother hate his guts their only chance how much does that leave 62 dollars and 47 cents is a feast set along the new jersey shore sometime in the 1950s big night follows two brothers primo and secundo and the struggling italian restaurant they have put their livelihoods into primo played by Tony Shalhoub, is the artistic genius, spending all day making glorious dishes that American customers cannot appreciate. Secundo, played by Stanley Tucci, is the more pragmatic, managerial brother, haggling with suppliers and meeting with the bank about their loans. With world-famous band leader Louis Prima set to dine at their restaurant while in town, the two brothers sink everything into one big night that could bring attention to their food and change their fortunes. Now, that's kind of the the general plot there's a lot more to this in a way uh this i believe was your first viewing of it correct uh correcto (laughs) (laughs) yes that's true though (laughs) okay no this is this is a movie this might as well almost have been my first viewing because i i have to admit i've only seen this movie once before Mm -hmm. and that was over 20 years ago and i remember really liking it and maybe i saw it a second time in between there but i I remember really liking it and that I really liked the food and how it was presented in this movie, which is why I think it paired well with the other one. It did kind of seem new to me in many ways. There's a lot more I got out of it this time. The first time I watched it, I was kind of a young kid. I was just uh, kind of appreciating its surface pleasures and, and kind of finding some of the stuff funny and some of the stuff sad. But I felt there was a little bit more thematic depth this viewing then I gave it credit to to begin with. I guess the most obvious thing about it I, to say is like the movie is stru- structured almost like the act of cooking a big meal itself because you start with the base pair of Primo and Secundo and there's Cristiano 
played by Mark Anthony in a role. I don't believe he has any lines, right? He never says anything through this movie. Wait, is that true? I, I was trying to. No, isn't, isn't he like singing to himself and dancing? Oh, no, wait, maybe that was music that was playing, but he's like dancing alone. For yeah, when he's I don't mopping. remember him having any dialogue in this movie. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. So you've got, you've got the, those two and Cristiano, and then the movie keeps slowly adding new characters that kind of become part of the, the texture of this. I mean, if we're going to keep going with the food metaphor, the dish that is this movie, mm. until you get to that big dinner scene at the end where all of the ingredients have now been added into one pot and it's kind of stirring together. I, I don't know. It's maybe not the most insightful thing to say about the movie. It's probably kind of probably an obvious metaphor, but I really enjoyed how the movie would introduce new ingredients and just kind of let them simmer until the end of the film. Hmm. That's a really good way to put it. I don't think that's, uh, I wouldn't say that that's not insightful. I, I like it when a movie like kind of picks its structure and, and goes with it. Yeah, definitely. I like the, the kind of the form meets the style. Yeah, it's like because you're you're not doing a play, so you have all these options in a film that you might as well take advantage of. I think being able to go to different places and well, I guess in a play you can introduce people whenever you want to as well. <laughs> That's not a rule. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like I like I like a strong choice, even if it's like oh, of course it's structured like like a five course meal, but like that's cool. I guess. How did, what did you think about this movie? Did you, did you enjoy it or was it kind of, I mean, well, I don't know what I'm trying to lead you <laughs> Or did you, did you hate it? No. <laughs> um, so I think, um, okay, let me, let me see. I think I enjoyed it. No, I did enjoy it overall. I would say probably if I were to give it a rating, it might be like an 80%. Well, that's um, still really high. San Marzano, tomato, 80%, <laughs> not rotten tomato. I think to give some context, I am Italian. And so ah, anytime okay. I watch, yeah, anytime I watch something with Italian culture, I'm always like, does this remind me of my family? And so like, I was going to bring this up. Um, so this is the perfect time to do so. Goodfellas has that scene where they're all cooking in prison. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so like that, that was a moment in a movie that really struck me where I was like, oh, that's exactly what it's like when my family cooks. Like, that's what the atmosphere is like. And that's what the food looks like. And so this one had a mixture to me. I think one thing that really took me out of it, not to start with the negative, because there were a lot of things I liked, but <laughs> the accents just really killed me. Yeah, I was actually... I don't, yeah, I don't think they're good Italian accents. <laughs> So I didn't, I didn't know, I did not know you were, you were Italian, but I did want to mention that. And especially now that you, you brought it up from your point of view, then what, cause it does seem, it, it also seems like in pop culture, the Italian accent is just kind of still agreed upon. It can be like used kind of a joke <laughs> as a joke. And yeah. I don't think they're trying to make the Italian accents a joke, but there are times, especially with with Tony Shalhoub, who's an actor I really love, and I think he's doing a great job in this. I think mm -hmm. he really goes for an exaggerated accent, more, yeah. more, more than Stanley Tucci, who kind of has a little bit of a shade to it. But Well, I think Tucci is. Is he? I, I mean, I, he's doing more of time? Yeah, his parents are both of Italian descent. Tony Shalhoub is really kind of going for that accent a he's few times. He's hamming it up. Yeah, and <laughs> he kind of does that in other movies as well, but it does... I, I did think this time, and when I saw this in the late 90s, I, I probably never entered my mind at all, but it, it did enter my mind this time, like how 
how authentic is this and how just false does some of this ring? It, it <laughs> I isn't... feel like if they had toned all the accents down, like just 10%, that, that would have taken me out of the movie a lot less, a lot oh. less often. But I mean, it wasn't really that big of a deal because I know that, I think you're right. I think it was more of a like of the time thing, like cultural sensitivity wasn't as big of a thing then and like, and not that I'm like offended by it, but I was just, especially Tony Shalhoub's, I'd be like, wow, this just sounds really funny, <laughs> but, but I'm like not taking him seriously. Well, what do you think then about, because Ian Holm, as you know, a, a very British actor playing uh, the more successful Pascal with just as much of an accent as well. Um, I felt like his wasn't quite as, you know, it might just be that Tony Shalhoub himself just is funny. And so maybe, maybe him plus an Italian accent is just too much, you know? Yeah. And, and I guess you're right. Like he, he's got more of the mannerisms. He's not necessarily, I'm talking about Ian Holm now, mm. not necessarily doing a voice as much as he's got the mannerisms. Like it never actually says what his, it never says he is, but he, he is involved in anything illicit but it definitely has like that kind of personality that you would recognize from i mean goodfellas or even sopranos or any of those martin scorsese inspired italian mob pictures where he just kind of like he's very gregarious but he also seems like he's he's uh, ready to wield his power i don't know he's like kind of yeah. like showboating and peacocking a lot yeah, there's a bit of like a viper waiting underneath. He definitely has a little bit of that shady mob boss energy to him. I also think that, so what was what's really interesting to me is that the movie synopsis is so focused on the external stakes and the external events, which I mean, it has to be because I guess that's what synopses are. But I feel like the movie is definitely about the relationship between the brothers. And I think it's really about them becoming committed to their relationship and their restaurant and their and their their partnered endeavor and 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 i think that's why like we don't find out at the end do they get a loan do they end up getting more customers because that meal was really good yeah yeah it doesn't ultimately matter oh you're completely right about that it is their relationship like they all have relate they both have relationships with people outside of the restaurant but it is them that are really the showcase of the movie and that yeah because we don't even know how the romantic things turn out like they're just kind of open-ended yeah maybe maybe they'll end up uh maybe uh what's his name actually wait, oh yeah segundo maybe he'll end up patching things up with a mini driver or maybe he won't we we don't know and we don't know how the flower shop lady is going to go either so and that to me really did resonate with the the italian culture that i grew up with because my dad will say it over and over again, like family is more important than anything. Like, and I think for him, it's even like more important than government. Yeah. <laughs> more, but um, we don't have to get into that. Oh, um, okay. But I feel like even, especially in Sicilian culture, if you look at the history, they were owned by so many different countries that I think at a certain point, it was kind of like, well, we just have to look out for ourselves, like our, our tribe, so to speak, our family and the, the people that we care about and you know it doesn't we can't trust these like larger systems because they're always changing anyway um so i don't know and to me that's that led to this sort of mafia rule in sicily and then i guess in much of italy was just more of a like small group sort of value structure yeah you're right in this film that it is the 
relationship between them is the centerpiece when I think the scenes that really stand out in my memory in this movie are the ones where it is just them in the kitchen cooking and there's not any dialogue. There's a couple of times where they're talking, but they're moving in the restaurant, uh, the restaurant kitchen in, in such, in such concert, like they're, they're moving so easily around each other that it looks so kind of gracefully choreographed in a way, mm. because I don't know how much, like if, if you've ever tried to cook in a kitchen with somebody else, <laughs> you guys have to be completely in sync or you're just going to be bumping into each other, waiting for the other person to move out of the way. It, it is not like that easy the way they make it look in this. So I kind of actually this time I wondered, did they did they maybe go to culinary school and <laughs> learn how oh. to like, did they do any training? Because I mean, there's that final shot in the movie, that one uninterrupted take where Stanley Tucci makes the frittata and mm. and he does it so effortless effortlessly like he's just like not even paying much attention to the pan he just kind of puts in a dash of salt i mean it's a simple dish but it's like just to be able to do that and you know on camera in the one take it does look like he, yeah. he knows what he's doing in a way i know i watched that egg flip and i was like well wow, how many <laughs> tries that took <laughs> did they stop the scene every time he tried to flip it and it didn't work and then they had to start over <laughs> even the other the other cooking scenes I mean, obviously, there's some trickery involved in it. They're not necessarily making the dishes that we see on screen, but just they are using ingredients. They are moving around each other. They're kind of a silent call and response to what one of them needs at a certain time. Mm-hmm. That That's kind of the, their relationship is everything I remember from this movie, and especially that ending, which I, I think is like a very kind of quietly powerful ending. Yeah, I kind of wondered if um, Barry Jenkins might have seen this and tucked that away in his in his inspiration or something. Because this, I I don't see a ton of movies that remind me of Moonlight, but weirdly that scene made me think like, oh, this is kind of a Moonlight, isn't it? Definitely, and it is. It is a. It is kind of a a reconciliation between two men, like mm-hmm. in one is the you know in one a romantic or possibly romantic reconciliation and this one a familial reconciliation that is centered around in some ways food more so in this movie than in moonlight but he does make him a meal at the end of moonlight oh that's true i forgot oh uh so the brothers in this secundo and and primo they do both seem to kind of view each other as a burden at times or at least that's outwardly what they say to other people like i think they each have a, a conversation with somebody where they are asked why they don't do something like, well, why don't you go back to Italy? Or, well, why don't you go cook this food? And each of them will say, oh, my brother, he has these ideas, or I can't do that to my brother. So they're both kind of like making concessions for each other. And and at times, never, and each seem like they are kind of like, maybe there's a little contempt growing there. They're maybe viewing their brother as holding them back in a way. Certainly from uh, Secundo, who really wants to make it be a success and seems to kind of like like he respects his brother's genius but is also like oh come on just make some spaghetti for people (laughs) (laughs) yeah primo was so enraged (laughs) when that lady asked for spaghetti the throwing the pot just before the camera cuts away was a really (laughs) nice touch yeah i feel like he had a lot of fun with that too there's definitely that resentment that's boiling over obviously by the end of the movie 
I also think it's really interesting because it's sort of an immigration story. Well, it definitely is, but it's about, um, it's like each brother personifies the different sides of the immigrant experience. Like there's this part of you that wants to hold on to your roots. And then there's this part of you that wants to acclimate and that wants to assimilate to American culture. And so I thought that was really cool that it was like, they, they did a good job of making them seem like real people, but they also really embodied the two sides of this experience and the, the tension and the fact that you can't really pull those apart as you're, as you're adjusting to a new culture, the way that the brothers couldn't in the end, wouldn't really separate from each other. I think that's the way it is for somebody living in a new place. Like part of you is always going to miss your home. And then part of you is always going to be looking forward and reaching toward this, the promise of this new experience. I think there were, there's kind of two main metaphors being told in the the story of of the way that they both uh view food and their their place and what they do their their way of life and the first main metaphor is you're completely right the immigration metaphor because they're kind of finding themselves in a position where they have to assimilate even though it's going to go against if they want to like be successful, they would have to assimilate more, even though it would compromise their ideals. And the the example that they have, of course, is Pascal, who's right across the street, serves Americans, <laughs> like American Italian food, is just a kind of campy showman. And at, he says a thing at the end of the movie where he's like, he says he is, I can't remember his exact line, but he says he is whatever he needs to be in any situation. It'll yeah. just be whatever whatever he needs to be to be a success in America. And so you, you see him there, they, they give him a, like an example of like, for a lot of the movies, Secundo wants what Pascal has. He wants to be successful. He wants to just like serve Americans, what Americans want. And he wants then, that car. Yeah. Yeah. But then at the end, you also see that that's kind of like, there's a little moral hole in Pascal that uh, Secundo, who is no angel himself is not necessarily willing to, you know, he's not willing to give up that part of himself to to have that. Yeah, and the shapeshifter is the one that asks Segundo, who are you at the end, which I feel like is is like the immigration struggle. It's like, what is my identity now? When your cultural identity becomes so mixed, yeah, then you're having to answer that question. And that's like, I mean, I feel like that's that's the question of most movies for most characters at least at some point. And it's like, it's a big question in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who am I? <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> and yeah, so th- I, I think the secondary metaphor here, maybe the more obvious one at first glance is food is clearly Primo's art. And so the metaphor then here is, well, staying pure versus selling out which is kind of not not an argument people have these days, but, but Primo wants to sell that risotto, or not sell, he wants to make that risotto. Who cares if Americans want it? Who cares if Americans can't find the seafood or don't recognize that it's rice or want meatballs with it? He wants to make the food and he won't, he won't compromise that. He says he won't sacrifice his art or it will die. There's also... A, a counter argument in the movie. Um, I think that's. I think Stash is the character name, the guy that's always eating there for free, and he gives them a painting at one point to pay for his meals. And and there's a line of dialogue. He's been doing that for a long time. Like he just gives them a painting every once in a while. 
mm-hmm. that art does need a patron. Like it, you, it, it is all well and good to feed your soul with art, but you do need to also <laughs> feed your body. And mm-hmm. the movie never makes like a big, the movie I think is completely on Primo's side. He, he should stay pure because that meal that he makes, it, it just blows everybody away. It is clearly like we see that he is correct in not changing what he's making or changing how he makes it. But it, it, the movie does also it does offer a counterexample of somebody has to just kind of like they, they, they're using their art to pay for or to survive mm-hmm. in a very physical way, not just a like a mental, spiritual way. I didn't think about that that early example. I don't know if maybe I'm reading too much into it. It, it just because we're living in kind of like a world that is past the whole sellout debate. <laughs> like when nobody ever thinks of a band getting on a, a car commercial as like, oh, they're sellouts. You think of them like, oh, hey, they kind of made it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, I think what this movie shows and um, probably what many other movies about artists show is that it's incredibly stressful. <laughs> it's a very stressful <laughs> tension to live with. And like, I don't know, I feel like sometimes the attitude is like, well, you just want to like play with clay all day or like you're just writing your little stories or something. I don't know. Maybe there's just belittling voices in my head, but <laughs> it's just sort of the day-to-day reality of like, oh, there is a bill coming and I need to have money for it. And like, I need to do something to get that money. And so you're like, there's this like Rolodex of choices in your head that you're flipping or almost like a slot machine more, more so. That's like, which things do I need to line up? (laughs) Yeah. And I, so I feel like uh, the tension that the brothers express definitely, it hits the nail on the head for just that feeling of like, sometimes you just want to scream next to the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I had a thought during this kind of like off topic here a little bit. I had a thought watching it that this movie really only works nowadays as a period piece uh, because our food culture has changed so much in the last uh, it's been 25 years now where so much kind of well the term foodie i don't think foodie existed back then whatever your feelings on that term are where so many people are really invested in finding authentic meals or these fusion meals or just like kind of out of the way spots with unique uh, menus that i don't think them I, I don't think setting this movie in present day they would have the same problem trying to find people uh, an audience for their food I, not at all <laughs> I, I feel, yeah i mean maybe it was only just interesting to me but i was just like well that's that's kind of that's kind of interesting how our our culture has changed so much around food and that the only way you could really do this is if you set it in like a really rural town like some i mean some place just like out in the middle of nowhere and then it would just become a fish out of water movie it, it wouldn't be the same like what they're trying to do or say with this film here yeah i know what you mean i also that actually brings up another note that i made about this movie which is when is this set i i really can't tell it, it's, i could not tell what decade this was it's the 1950s which it's supposed to be the 50s yeah I mean, yeah, it was only the cars and then the women's clothing somewhat. But I was like, but I also feel like the women are really, they seem like 80s or 90s women to me. Well, yeah, especially kind of like Isabella Rossellini and Minnie Driver. 
they, they seem very much more modern. And I guess maybe Alice and Janney too. Yeah, Janney's a business owner. Yeah. I believe, yeah, it's the 50s because of the, the style signifiers. And Louis Prima, I believe. I mean, he he had a long career, but... I just, oh, right. <laughs> I, I just feel like I couldn't place it exactly myself. I had a vague idea of the 50s, but that is def- that is what the description calls it everywhere. That That is just supposed to be the 50s in New Jersey. Okay, interesting. That, okay, wow. Hmm. One thing that I, I kind of noticed about this, and I'll, I have to be... I'll I'll be honest about this. I kind of got the idea from reading a review. Maybe I'll I'll post it. I can't remember exactly which review I read, but I went back and I was like kind of looking over parts of the movie, and there is a interesting, possibly unintentional, religious undercurrent to this movie. In mm-hmm. like like kind of you know the the most obvious one would be uh, Pascal is very much trying to deceive and tempt the brothers and seduce them and like uh, get them to compromise their ideals. But yeah, so you've, you've even got their restaurants. I mean, their, their restaurant is called the paradise or maybe just paradise. And then his restaurant is the Italian grotto, which first of all, grotto, you know, it's like underground cave, but also the paradise restaurant it's so clean everything in there is light colors and white and very kind of like sparse not not spartan but it's like cleanly decorated there's not a lot of business going on but then you go to the grotto across the street and it's very loud it's more i guess sensuous in a way because there's just a lot of people moving around in there it's in lots of reds and blacks and even the first time that you see Pascal, he's presenting that flambe, whatever that dish is, to the guests, and you see him behind flames that are rising up in front of his face. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> the movie never makes like a huge point out of it. But then you've got at the end where I believe Primo is saying, I can't remember his exact dialogue. I think it is, he says, to eat good food is to know God. And he talks about food in like religious terms. Like he talks about, uh, God's knowledge is angel's bread. And he says he doesn't understand what that means, but he likes the way it sounds. But you, you also get the He end. also, though, it's almost like they view it in a very Catholic way too, though, because he, what else does he say? He's like, oh, this, after you eat this, you have to kill yourself. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's a kind of, kind of violent religiosity about it. Which is, is another like, well, I don't know if this fits into that metaphor at all, but it's a, a counterpoint to when, Pascal eats the timpano. His first reaction is, "I have to kill you." That was so good. <laughs> Instead of like the uh, his example, yeah. I have to kill myself. It's so good. Pascal is, "I have to kill you." That was so yeah. Good. I definitely noticed that. <laughs> his was more self-serving, <laughs> um, and also kind of like a Judas in a way. If uh, if Primo is like yeah. Jesus, then Pascal is like a Judas. Yeah, and he he has that whole that that because at the end when he's talking to secundo is when he has that whole thing about why well, i am whatever i need to be and he's 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 lied he's told them Pri, louis prima is coming and so they sink all their money into this night and you find out at the end the revelation is that he never called louis prima like louis prima was never going to come so they just spent all this money for basically a good party and his his argument is that he did it because he respects them and he wants them uh, to come work for him. But that would 
mean, you know, kind of like sacrificing or corrupting uh, Primo's ideals. And Secundo, also, how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, how does I, that show them respect? Like, couldn't you just called him? I don't understand. That, con- that actually confounded me. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's the closest thing this movie has to a villain. So he's not exactly logical all the time. I guess maybe he was trying to sink them also. That just yeah. He, he wanted to get them and send them back to Italy maybe, but they weren't ever a threat to him. They had better food, but he's also like, it's not food that Americans want. But, oh, at that time, uh, yeah. Primo said, or no, Secundo says about Primo that, uh, oh, Secundo says that Primo lives in a world above him and he would never work for him, which is also another, like, possibly, you, like, religious angle on it. Maybe I'm reaching too much, but it's just like, there is something about Pascal in flames because there's a scene where Secundo is driving by and a chef runs out and his apron's on fire and and Pascal is running after him. And I couldn't tell if Pascal was chasing him or just like trying to help him. But the guy did just run away after taking the apron off. I thought he was chasing him. I Yeah, that scene, I thought... I thought so here's one thing that's kind of interesting to me is that I like where it ended, but I also feel like there was a lot going on that could have led to a whole third act if the movie were like way longer or maybe they cut down on some of the beginning or something because I thought seeing the like burning apron I was like okay so Pascal's like involved in something more than just being a restaurateur and so what is that and like is that gonna catch up with everybody which it, it really didn't I guess again it went like the moonlight route it was more about internal things and honestly for what was this 1996 I kind of respect that yeah, in, a, in the age of like Santa Claus and other <laughs> other movies where it's like they got the the concrete thing that they were after. <laughs> yeah. Um that super wasn't how it how it went. <laughs> no, and it ends on such a note of like we don't know where these characters are going, but they have made it through temptation and and kept each other. You know that the they're they're just sitting there eating a simple frittata and they slowly put their arms around each other's shoulders as they as they keep eating which is kind of like that's the mission statement of this movie that is the the final shot that is the final thing it is telling us is they're going to be together yeah spiritually if not physically yeah and i guess i guess following your religious theme that makes this almost like a faustian tale doesn't it yeah he never end up, ends up making because Pascal's kind of offering that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I guess he doesn't actually follow through. This kind of veers away from like um, symbolic themes and stuff, but um, I also felt like the last scene and many of the many of the scenes along the way um, showed these moments of the reality of working in food service, <laughs> because I feel like it's such a thankless job. Yes. I think that, um, especially with Cristiano sleeping on the table the next morning, <laughs> yeah, and then how they all just look so tired, <laughs> and there's this just this quietness. It kind of reminds me of like um, a lot of my twenties. I worked on farms as well, and it's very similar. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a yeah. I guess that's a whole. That's just a different sector of food service. But it's, I say it's thankless, but it's also like fueled by passion. And I definitely saw that um, with Primo and Segundo it, and their silent um, waitstaff. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just think it's, um, 
I think it's something that people don't think about a lot. Like we all go out to eat a lot. We all obviously purchase food all the time. Um, and I think that I, I like movies that bring to light that if you work in that world, it's because you really want to, there's this like inner fire that's driving you to do it most likely. And, um, you're working when everybody else is having fun. <laughs> yeah. And um, I noticed that uh, when Louis Prima son showed up and Stanley Tucci started to like pick up the plates and like everyone else was just kind of lounging on the table and they were reminiscing about things and they were all like fattened up and happy and drunk and stuff. And I was just like, that is so true. Like that resonates so much with like anytime that I've hosted things or anytime that I've been working like at a farmer's market or at a food stand or something, everyone else is like milling around and just kind of like letting their blood sugar rise. And <laughs> I'm like cleaning away at something or bagging up whatever. And I don't know. And it's not to say, I don't know. I'm not saying that like in a resentful way, but I just think it's, it's nice to realize these people that are really the backbone of a lot of our, our culture and society. So many things take place in locations where we eat or they take so many things take place events take place around meals um or bars or i don't know i would like to see more uh, media honestly kind of illuminating just these jobs that aren't like your nine to five or corporate or or like super adventurous passionate jobs you know like instagrammer kind of jobs yeah. but but there's these just kind of humble humble occupations that i guess have been highlighted by the pandemic actually they're considered essential workers. Yeah, but they're still they're still not really getting the you know the acclaim. They're getting acclaim, but they're not getting like the support. I don't think they need. Like <laughs> we we've, yeah. we've ordered food delivery a few times through the pandemic because it just like God, it never stops. You have to eat every day, and you're supposed to make something different every day. <laughs> yeah. And so we've ordered, and the last time we ordered uh, we ordered a pizza. We gave the person a 20% tip and I've, I've been saying this whole time, like if you can't tip 20% or more, like you got to be tipping more for these people that are out there. And the guy said to her, uh, my, my, the guy said to my partner, like, that's the biggest tip I've gotten all day. And it was an, eight, it was an $8 and 75 cent tip. And it was like, it that, that he felt he had to say it because it was so like rare to get a tip like that. And he seemed so happy about it. It made me feel really bad. Like, are people not tipping? Are, are people ordering food? And I get it. Everybody's financial situation is different. But I just think, like, if you're going to be ordering right now and people are literally putting their health on the line for this, try to scrounge together a tip. Yeah, just, yeah, exactly. Look on your couch, grab some quarters, put them, put them in an envelope outside your door. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so, I yeah, I really like that about this this movie, I thought that that portrayal was, um, I don't know, I thought that resonated with food service world. And I, I wonder what other food service people would think of it. Because I remember friends that would work in kitchens and like, I remember one friend who worked in kitchens in New York and I would always like text him on the weekends and I'd be like, oh, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to come do it? And you always be like, I'm working. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> of course you are. It's the yeah. fun time. I also kind of wondered in this movie, what Cristiano's deal was because they they seem so dismissive of him like they don't they don't really address him directly in any sort of 
friendly way. Like they they kind of bark orders at him and they seem a little annoyed by him all the time. And he's just there in the background, not saying anything, like running around, helping out, picking up messes. Like he's doing a lot of work, but they just seem like so dismissive of him. Yeah. I wonder if he was supposed to be this cousin or something who came over who maybe didn't speak English yet or and maybe he was a little bit of a burden as well or yeah, I don't know. Sure. I, f- I feel like if he was family, that would have been mentioned once or twice. I, I just thought he was a like another uh, another either immigrant or local child of immigrants at this point. That yeah, that because there is a Italian American community. It we it appears like there there are they all have they both have friends, and it does seem like you know there there's other immigrants living in the area, and they seem to kind of know some of them. So I just thought he was, he, he came from that group. Yeah, he probably did. He probably did. So, I don't know if, I don't know if there was a cut where he is expanded upon or something. <laughs> and maybe we just didn't see that. Yeah. I kind of feel like maybe not. I, it does seem like, but he's such a, I guess Mark Anthony in 1996, what was he, what was he doing? But it just seems like nowadays, like, oh, wow. What a, what a big name for such a small role that never says anything. Yeah. Also, okay. So full disclosure, I'm really bad at actor names. So I'm, I'm like looking at the whole cast right now. And I'm like, oh, wait, who's this person? Who's this? this is one of the ways that I'm very ill-suited for LA is that I, I just constantly misplace actor names and faces. <laughs> I'm um, bad. Yeah. I, I'm okay with actors more, better than I am with characters. So many times I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, it's that other guy that was in that other movie and I can't remember his character name. Ah, uh. I feel like I remember the characters pretty vividly. I guess we're opposites in that way. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the, um, the names are pretty memorable in this one. Yeah. So with this one, I feel like that was, I was going to comment about the cast that it seems like, I don't know if this is a lot of people's first movie, but it seems like there were a lot of actors who were, who were going to go on to be great. It seems like this, there were early roles for a lot of them in this movie. I don't know. Well, it it was it was early role for, I think Mark Anthony and uh, Minnie Driver who played uh, Phyllis. This was an early role. She'd done some TV and other bit parts and movies, but she hadn't yet done. I, she might have been in the Bond movie, but she she hadn't done like Rose Point Blank or anything like that. Hmm. But it, it's also Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott who co-directed it with him. He played the car salesman. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were just kind of character actors and had been in a lot of things, but nothing, nothing this like really broke them through yet. And so they like Stanley Tucci, I think has said that he wrote this with his cousin while he was working on, working on a movie. He he hated. And they like, both of them kind of wanted to work on a project that they wanted to do and that they liked. And so they kind of directed this project together. And it looks like, just got a bunch of their actor friends to be in it because Stanley Tucci's directed a few more movies and his next movie, uh, the imposters, the one I, I screwed up and said Oliver Platt was in this oh. one. <laughs> um, the next movie that they're in, it has a lot of the same cast, like Isabel, Isabella Rossellini is in it again. A lot mm. of the people that worked on big night are also in the imposters. Okay. Yeah. They kind of feel like um, a little, a little camp of actors that do work together. And what's also weird to me is that uh, I feel like there's some connection to Amy Sherman Palandino because um, I've seen a lot of them in either Gilmore Girls or Marvelous Miss Maisel. 
I say a lot, but I think it was just a certain percentage where I was surprised. Yeah, because the the I haven't seen Miss Maisel, but I did see that that customer in the beginning that was complaining about the risotto. Yeah, he, he is in. Is Shirley? Um, uh, what is her? What is? Oh, duh, Maisel. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah I wonder what. So I don't know what the deal is with that. I, maybe they just all knew each other, and and maybe like when one actor got connected to the project that he was just like, Oh, I know this person. I worked with them on big night or something, but I don't know. I feel like they were all young in this movie and they were all just going for it. And I kind of feel like sometimes the performances I think could have been a little more relaxed. Like it's like, I've seen these actors in later roles where they were really comfortable in their skin. Yeah. Whereas, whereas I feel like in this one, um, it was a little endearing to me, I guess, that it was like, oh, they're like really, really acting <laughs> because I feel like for a lot of them, it was like, oh, this is a, this is a bigger role than I've done before. It's different yeah, energy. I can, I can see that. I can see that. I will say, I think, I think everybody comes across all right in this movie. And I, I like the representations of the characters. I like, like there's a warmth that everybody is treated with, even even though Secundo is doing some like pretty crappy things in this movie. And even though Pascal is nominally the villain of the movie, he's not treated with hatred by the film. He's like treated as he's got these faults, but I think that there's a warmth in this movie that I really like and respond to. Yeah. I guess, I guess if you were to use one adjective to describe it, it would probably be familial. I think familial would sum up the movie. Yeah, oh, very good. Yeah, that, that works very well. Yeah, the director, that like the tone and yeah, the way the characters come across, the writing, the themes. So um, do you have anything else you wanted to say about that or do you want to you move on to our next film? Let's see, went over the structure, food service, passion. The only other thing, I talked a little bit about the violent communication style, but that also just really, <laughs> that was the other thing that um, that really resonated with me in Italian culture was just all the like, the way they had to scream at each other and the, the way that they were like, after you eat this, you have to kill yourself. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, I just feel like the anger. Oh, actually, no, wait, there was one other thing. Oh, this is getting kind of long, but I, I still have time. If you have time. I have nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, actually, yes, this is pretty important. I wanted to bring up, um, I guess from like a feminist viewpoint, um, Something that I see in that's similar in the two movies that we watched is that it's not the most feminist. Uh, and they're both older movies, so that totally makes sense. But I also feel like it's not um, like terribly misogynistic. Like I kind of feel like it's showing a culture and the way that it is. And it's not necessarily saying this is great and I condone it, but it's also not really like breaking that much ground for women. Like, the women characters, I do feel like are real people. And so that I think is pretty forward, especially given when it was made. Um, no. Yeah. But there's still like, the women are basically only, um, only love interests. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's three women characters and you're right. They're all love interests of the two men. And um Phyllis and Isabella Rossellini's character. I cannot remember what her is, character. Name. What is her name? They're oh, both... Gabriella. Okay. 
So Phyllis and Gabriella are both in a relationship with uh, Secundo, and Gabriella knows about it, but Phyllis does not, thinks that they're on the road to be engaged. And they have a scene together and it, towards the end of the movie, and there's, I mean, it's a very kind of like sweet scene, although they're still just talking about the men in their lives. <laughs> like, But they are treated like that. these are, you know, they have their own concerns. They have their own ways that they have been maybe not damaged, but just kind of like fed up with the men around them or the stuff that they have to put up with. Mm-hmm. But but you're right. It does. It does just come down to the fact that uh, all three of them are, are, are love interests, but they're, you're right. They're not treated in any kind of, uh, they're treated better than a lot of other films from this time period or earlier. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting to just see the evolution of like, oh, these days, I mean, that, well, I don't even know if the Bechdel test existed then, but it's like, it definitely wouldn't pass it, but it also, I feel like the writer, I mean, I feel like they did make an effort to give them something, but the fact that, yeah, when they're, when they're talking alone in the garden and Phyllis is like, oh, these people, men, (laughs) it's just, I I don't know, that line to me is like, is there any, what else is going on for you? Like, (laughs) I don't even know what your home life is like. And I get that it's the 50s, so I get that women actually were very dependent on men for their survival, and bagging a husband probably was a big deal. And it is interesting. I mean, they did make an effort to show three different types because Anne somehow had her own business. I don't know if she inherited it or what what was going on. I guess she likes reading about pioneers. (laughs) (laughs) We know that about her. Um, And then Gabriella was like very free. Yeah, and then and then I guess actually maybe maybe what what struck me is that I don't really know that much about Phyllis besides the fact that she wants to gain Secondo's approval. I, I don't really know anything else about her. I yeah. mean, how, how would you describe her personality? It's almost like she finally frees herself at the end because she like throws off the dress and then she's swimming. And that was the most authentic scene I thought for her of the whole movie was like, oh, you seem like a real person now. Yeah, I'm not actually sure what, how I would describe her because she's not like, she's not like a wilting, mousy figure. She she speaks up for herself when needed, but she does seem like kind of, I don't know, there's that early scene where we first see her, well, the second time we see her because we see her in the very beginning at the bank, but when they're on that date and they're in the back of the car making out and like she clearly wants to go further and Secundo is the one that's like, no, not now, not now. It needs to be special. And she gets a little angry at him for not understanding like, or for the, for kind of like treating her as maybe a little childish or less developed. Like maybe she would, like, like he's saying that she wouldn't understand money and she works in a bank. <laughs> and oh yeah, <laughs> so she does have, the character seems to have agency, but in the story, it's all just kind of still at the concerns of the male character, her love interest. But yeah, yeah I'm and sure. I, I get that she's not the, I get that she's not a main character and that the story focuses on these two guys. And I mean, that's just kind of the thing of like men writers and men directors is they will tend to write stories that are just about men and it doesn't even stand out that much to male viewers. But I mean, to me, it stands out because it's like, oh, I don't really... So this all, they, all the power, all the moves, everything centers around them. And then I don't really like have someone to like visually attach to in the story, I guess, even though 
you know, yeah. obviously we're all humans. So yeah, I can like relate to the, the universal feelings that they have. I watch a lot of like really old stuff. I watch m all types of movies, some, <laughs> some more respectable than others, but I, I watch a lot of really old movies and it's just like, even the more respectable, respectable movies, the way that they treat their women characters or their minority characters, if they have any, it is shocking to me how much I didn't notice that in my teens and even my twenties versus how much over the past 15 years or however long, like it, it's, it's one of those things like in my twenties, I was starting to kind of like become aware of it. But now I look back at it and I'm like, gosh, how did I not ever notice this? Or how did I think some of this stuff was okay? Like it, was it really that much of a different world? And this is 25 years ago and it, it is, purporting to be in a movie from like 60 or in a period from 60 or 70 years ago. Right. But still, like, I just it, think it, it's, it's easy to not notice when you, when you can identify with the main characters more easily, you know? Yeah, I do. I, I try to, I try to be better about noticing it now. I try to like view the movie from, or at least try to view the movie through different lenses, but <laughs> it, it's always it's also a conversation I'm constantly having with myself like how much can I forgive in a movie just because it's old but right uh, <laughs> that is the big question because yeah. there's there's a lot of like really great movies and I go back and watch them I'm like oh oh no <laughs> like this is <laughs> this is not okay <laughs> even even it's a wonderful life I mean I love that movie but it's like Mary uh, becomes a librarian and starts wearing glasses and that's like that's like, and she's single. That's the worst version of her life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, it, I know. There's, it, it's, it is interesting to me also to think that like, gosh, all of our progressive ideals are also going to look so outdated in the future. <laughs> they're gonna like, it's just a way of things. But still, like, I know they're gonna be like, you had gender assigned at birth. What the fuck? <laughs> So I think I think that might be it for this movie. If you, unless you thought of anything else, and we can move over to Tom Popo. Uh, no, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's do it. うるさいわね。そうだね。また Described by writer-director Juzo Itami as a noodle western, Tampopo is a funny, warm, digression-filled exploration of the intersection between food and, well, every aspect of our lives, from birth to death and everything in between, all told through the framework of a trucker trying to help a widow fix up her noodle shop and become the best ramen chef in town. Now, this movie came out in 1985. I have 
heard of this movie a lot. And yet I was not really aware of what the movie was. I kind of just heard the title a lot as like, oh yeah, it's a great movie. It's one of the best Japanese movies or, or it's on these lists of great Japanese movies. And I never read any descriptions of it. So I'm so glad that you picked this because from just about the opening frame of this movie, or the, even that opening scene of this movie, I knew I was going to love it. And I loved every minute of this movie. It was <laughs> such a delight. Uh, I'm, I'm actually really glad I didn't look into what the movie was about because it was such a complete surprise, every scene and every development in this movie. But mm -hmm. you, this is your choice. So you, you've seen this uh, at least a couple times previously. Uh, just really quickly, like your history or what you think your thoughts on this movie. Overview. Well, what's so interesting to me is that I, I started asking people, have you seen this movie called Tampopo? And because I just like, I subscribed to the Criterion channel oh, in yeah. 2020. And so I was just wandering around and I was like, okay, I need a movie that is fun and that's going to help me just be in the present and laugh. But I also need it to not be like too dumb. And so... I just ended up stumbling upon it and I just watched it alone one night and it was just so delightful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was like everything that I needed in the midst of when was the first time I saw it? I think it was either right before or right after the election. So as you can imagine, yeah, <laughs> so you can imagine late 2020. Yeah. That's the time when you need Tempopo. And so then I started asking people and they were like, oh, I've been meaning to see that. And I was like, why, why has everyone been meaning to see this? So I guess this movie is a big deal, which I did not realize. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw it again like a month or so later because my friend wanted she was she was like oh I've been meaning to see that and I was like really why is no one's ever brought this up before and now it's just like everyone has it on their list yeah. oh man it's it's a movie that <laughs> I don't I don't think there's a ton of conversation about this movie but I I mean you, you found it through the Criterion channel I'm pretty sure that's one of the ways it would have stayed in my memory too I had the Criterion channel short for a brief while but I've I've been following the Criterion Channel, or not channel, but just Criterion Collection since the 90s. I think to people who do that, who, who are like following what Criterion is putting out, Tampopo is a big title. I just don't think it's like it, it, very widely known outside of that these days oh. or, or outside of that, so, that class of film fan, you know, the people that, that follow boutique distributors and foreign films. But yeah, it, it, I mean, I certainly heard of the title, but I just didn't know what it was about. You're, you're also making me aware that I'm part of a niche, I guess, which I didn't, <laughs> I forget. <laughs> Maybe my taste, I was like, isn't everyone subscribed to the Criterion? Is that not a... Oh, definitely, definitely not. I mean, I'm not even subscribed. <laughs> I'm not even subscribed to it anymore. I just couldn't, I'd be the only one in the house that would get regular usage out of it. And I can't, I just couldn't justify the expense of another so streaming like 11 service. bucks, but yeah, I know what you mean. I, yeah. I mean, I'm we've got debating. so many services right now. Like I have to yeah. kind of like cycle through them just to feel like I'm getting any use out of my money. <laughs> and I know what I you loved, mean. I yeah. love the Criterion Channel when I had it. I just like right now, I can't do it. I can't. You want to split mine? No, well, maybe. <laughs> Actually, let's talk after. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, you didn't hear that Criterion people. Oh, it, it's edited out. I'm not leaving this in. <laughs> <sighs> Where to begin with this? Where to begin? Well, it starts, so I'm just going to, I'll quickly just kind of go my experience with the beginning of this movie. Okay. And that scene in the beginning where he sits down at the theater and the, the gangster and his girlfriend, and he's got those three underlings and they're kind of placing the food. Like he's got this big feast in front of him at the theater. Mm -hmm. 
And then he kind of just quickly notices the audience. Like he notices the camera and gets up and he's like, oh, so you're watching a movie too. And talks about his love of movies. And I was like, where is this movie going? Like what, why, why, like, why have I not heard this? This is like really my type of movie. This is right up my alley. And I love Japanese films. And then it begins, it's the truckers, the one, the one guy in the passenger seat is reading a book. And in the book, it's describing ramen and how to eat the perfect way to eat the perfect bowl of ramen. And I tell you, this is the most hungry I've ever been watching a movie <laughs> when, <laughs> when they are showing that ramen and he's talking about how, how to place, like move little things out of the way. Your first bite should be this. And then after this, now you can try a little bit of the, the, the broth. You should apologize to the the pork that you're about to eat <laughs> like <laughs> i was starving and then you know it introduces the movie proper they go to get ramen because they're hungry now too after reading this and and we get into the plot where this trucker goro kind of intercedes and helps a this widow who's running a ramen shop and she begs him to help her make her ramen shop the best in japan and that's the plot but what I wasn't prepared for was how many digressions this movie takes. <laughs> like, I, I feel, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll get to what I'm saying. I, I'm just talking so much right now. But that scene where he's training her and they're going out for a jog and the, the, they stop to rest for a minute and these Japanese businessmen come walking from the distance, walk past the main characters of the film and the camera follows them and follows them for a little while as they go to a restaurant and order food. This movie had such an interesting flow where every little vignette led, led into the next one. And some of them were completely inconsequential to the plot. And then others would come back a little bit. Right from the get-go, I was like utterly charmed, but completely thrown off, like not knowing where the movie was going to go. It keeps you on your toes. Yeah. And what I think is so interesting is that other movies that might attempt this could fail so horribly. You know what I mean? Like how many film school teachers would tell you, oh yeah, you need to put this scene in that has nothing at all to do with your story, does not advance the story in any way. <laughs> and you need to make that scene like eight minutes long. Okay, maybe not eight minutes long, but there were like some pretty long digressions. But I, I think that it all tied together so well thematically um, that it, it actually worked it worked so well. Like I was not bored at any point. And I don't know, it was so like humorous. It had this really, had this really unique sort of gently humorous perspective on like people and how they approach food and how people approach each other with food and like conformity and nonconformity. I don't know, but I could just see so many like indie films with these like um, purposeless you know, like quote unquote purposeless scenes, like really, really not taking flight. <laughs> but I feel like this one really did. It, it did. And part of that, because even the purposeless scenes, as we, we've talked about, like purposeless or inconsequential, they are still in support of the thematic underlying, well, the thematic underbelly of this movie. I mean, it's all about how important food is, how it informs everything we do. Uh, there's, that scene where the guy on the train, you know, he has his tooth is killing him. And so he goes to the dentist and now finally, <laughs> oh, yeah. finally he can eat and he goes to eat ice cream and he shares it with this kid who's got the sign around his neck. that's like, please do not feed him any sweets. He's on an organic diet or, yeah. or whatever. 
<laughs> and there's a carrot attached to the sign. Yeah. And then <laughs> there's also the scene later where the guy runs home to his dying wife and his wife is basically basically dead, but she gets up, she gets better just long enough to cook at the family a last meal. She watches them start to enjoy it and then she dies. And it's a very tragic comic scene. Like, it's very sad. <laughs> I was watching it like, oh, those poor kids at this table. And the dad's like, this is the last thing she made for us. You have to eat it to respect her. Eat but it it's while it's warm. <laughs> but it's also kind of funny, but it's very sad. Where I think that's that's what everything in this movie is, is leading into. It, I mean, it all dovetails so nicely into the idea that food is like everything. For as much as you never see it in pop culture. I mean, that, that, I'm just thinking about the times you you watch a character really enjoy a meal in one of these action movies or whatever the the hollywood blockbusters oh yeah that drives me crazy when people are are uh, in a scene and they're not touching their food at all and then they yeah. just leave and the food the plate's like an entire burger and fries and i'm like how often would you do that how often yeah. would you spend like 18 dollars <laughs> like <laughs> at least take a few bites out of it it it's something we're doing every day almost all day like th periodically throughout every day of our lives we are going it's to be... one of the sole reasons that we make money yeah yeah to purchase food <laughs> it is it is and so this movie is is just about how all of the different ways that we have a relationship with food and some of it i mean some of it is very perfunctory some of it is very passionate some of it is kind of gross some of it is silly and sad and funny and all the things that you know, every aspect of life, basically, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I also, um, it, when you brought up the woman dying scene, I feel like there's also this secondary theme running through of women being nurturers or women being feeders. And I don't know if that's like, I feel like it's something every reflection of maybe Japanese culture and like the different roles, because I know that it's a little more, well, a lot more codified there, like people's social roles and, um, what what roles women are expected to play and what roles men are expected to play in society and so i definitely noticed that like it's it's all men that are helping her and that are kind of like directing her and telling her what to do but she's like this um i'm talking about tom popo the business owner she's like this crown jewel sort of or like she's like the orchid that they're nurturing yeah um and the very and the very last image is not i mean it is someone it is someone eating but it's like the kid that's breastfeeding and so that's to me I guess you brought up that it's birth to death. So yeah, I guess that's like the, one of our youngest stages of eating. But, but to me, I was like, oh, they're showing that women play this really essential role in it. Like Tampopo has to be the one that makes the ramen, not any of the guys that are helping her. It, it, I thought which, that was really interesting. Like it, it's just it, a very specific statement, I feel like. No, you're, you're correct. It is true that she is the focus of this, but all of the chefs that she goes to learn from are men. <laughs> so yeah, that... <laughs> you think all the men have to show her how to do it, but you're right. Like, I don't want to make, we never want to make gen generalizations about an entire culture, but you are right that it, Japanese culture, women, especially in, in the eighties, it might be a lot different now, but historically Japanese culture, women have been in, you know, much more defined roles than they are now. I would also point out, not not necessarily to excuse it, but also just to point out that this movie takes so much of those cues from Western culture as well. The mm. idea of, like, because he calls it a noodle Western, and that that's a little misleading, but 
you can track a Clint Eastwood Western kind of over a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie, the Goro and Tempopo storyline, because he's the the kind of mysterious loner stranger who comes into town. He starts helping the locals. He forms an attachment to the comely widow, I guess, to put it in kind of like, you know, outdated terms. But you know what I mean? Where he's helping her and then he rides off into the sunset at the end of the movie where those things where the guys come together to help the woman like that, that is, I don't know. He, he is kind of riffing off of Western culture in a way as well, even though it is part of Japanese culture. It, he, the framework he's using is very Western. Yeah. It's an interesting blend in that way. And I, I feel like that might be just kind of an expression of the eighties. Like I feel like, they probably were dealing with more of a more Western influence at that point. It might have expressed this sort of like cultural shift that was happening of like, oh, because yeah, actually there was that scene um, with the young women eating the spaghetti where the teacher was telling them, oh, Westerners eat spaghetti like this where they don't make a noise at all. And then there was a white guy that they could see from where they were sitting who was eating it in a really sloppy, <laughs> really yeah. noisy way. And so they all the young ladies started copying him and so I feel like that was kind of a statement that was being made of like how this culture is evolving. Cause I guess like traditionally Japan has been more isolationist, but then at certain times they've kind of like let in, so to speak, outsiders more. And so it's sort of like, how do they, what attributes of Western culture do they want to take on? And like, what, what attributes do they not want to take on? And I feel like the movie was just kind of uh, showing that transition period to some degree. Yeah, that that's interesting because I didn't I hadn't thought about that in regards to this movie, but the eighties here in America, like kind of Asian exoticism was so such a big part of pop culture. Like you think about all those movies, you see see the action movies, the the star the star is in a kimono when they're at home or something like that. Like you're you're seeing a lot of Asian culture, or at least the iconography of Asian culture make its way here like you know ninjas and karate were so big yeah yeah and the reverse has almost always been true where you see pop culture from anywhere around the world in kind of american culture or western culture not in this, not just american but western culture has been so dominant around the globe that it, it does seep into the cultures around the world like even even as far back like you know the 40s and 50s japanese movies kurosawa was was taking very western formats to make his his all very japanese movies like um i mean seven samurai yojimbo they're all they were remade as westerns but they were also taking western iconography to tell those stories so it's interesting to see that like when you can point that out and be like oh it's taking from here or this is like this kind of cross-pollination between cultures yeah and i i don't know i just love seeing things like that i think it's so interesting because i I think you're right that you can't make generalizations about cultures and but I also think it's true that they're never stagnant and they're they're I think they're as simple as people saying like oh I like that I want to do that you know like I don't know oh I like I like um what's an example have you ever been to a Daiso in in LA do you know what I'm talking about I have not oh my gosh you gotta go when <laughs> when <laughs> everything's open again but it's a Japanese dollar store there's one in Koreatown and there's one in Northridge and I don't know, they're all over. Um, so one, one time at one, I found this mug that had a tiny spoon that fit into the handle. 
And I just thought that was like the coolest thing. I had never seen that. And I don't, I don't know why that's not a common thing at all, but like you always need a spoon to stir your coffee and then you never want to set it down on the counter because you know, it's going to leave a little like coffee. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So then you put it in the sink, but it's like, you might need it again. Cause you're going to stir it again anyways. So I don't know. I just feel like me seeing that mug. I was like, Oh, that's cool. I love that. I want to make something like that. Um, and I feel like cultural transactions and exchanges and cross-pollination, as you said, are, are as simple as that. Like, like, I feel like we saw that in Tumpopo's fashion show as well, when they were styling her. I feel like the styles were pretty Western. Like her chef, um, her chef outfit was like a French chef. So I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, I just think it's cool to see like, see that on the ground level of like that moment when a person is like, oh, I'm taking this on. <laughs> No, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but it's so obvious for this movie because it, it's so much, I mean, just the idea that he's calling it a noodle Western and he's taking Western culture as the framework. I, I, can't, I can't believe I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. Uh, well, it's a big movie. You know, there's just so much going on. And I think the fact that it's about noodles really, like, there are all these strands. And so I think that can be why it's hard to put into words and why it's hard to even process as a movie because there's like strands of different storylines and you get attached to these different people. There's strands of different themes and it just like, yeah, it's, it's a lot going on. It is. It's definitely one I will be going back to soon. Like I almost watched it again today, but before we <laughs> talked to some like, Oh, I, I want to, I bet there's more I can find to talk about, but I, I just haven't been able to get to it. But I, it's one that I want to watch again. I want to get people together to watch it. It, it. Like once it's physically possible to do that again, I I have to admit, and this is this is me coming from Alaska, and I've been here six years, so I don't really have an excuse. But oh, that's why you said down here. I was like, did you come from the Bay Area? What are you talking about? Oh okay. yeah, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, got it. So, so coming from Alaska, but I've been here for six years, so I don't actually have an excuse. But I've never had legitimate ramen. <gasps> oh, <laughs> sorry. There's All the such ramen. good ramen. <laughs> I know, and and I hear so many good things about it. I just like, I think it was down here that I realized like, ramen had become a real thing. I, like, I can't remember how long ago it, it was when I first heard that ramen as a a legitimate dish in America because I always knew like the stuff that we got was kind of a cheap version of legitimate good dishes in Japan but that's all I knew it uh knew of ramen in America was top ramen umaro chen and that's all oh I've ever God. had that's all I've ever had and I saw the ramen in this movie and I've seen I've seen ramen in other things before but I just it looks so good I just wish oh yeah we've we ordered one of the restaurants we've ordered from a couple of times during the pandemic uh, is a ramen and curry place. And we've only ever gotten the curry there because I just, the, I want to go get ramen fresh. I don't want it to be sitting in somebody's car and like get here and the noodles are a little too mushy. Like, well, the noodles are kept separate when it's delivered, just to let you know. I well, think you're on the right track that, yeah, it's better to eat it in person in a place, but you would combine the broth with the noodles after you get it. Oh, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying Jinya ramen bar is pretty close to you. They would probably deliver. Maybe. Oh. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely have to do that. I guess I just looked at it this in this movie and they make it look so good and they describe it 
like the pork and little drops of fat on the, uh, sorry to any vegan listeners if they're out there, but it just looks so delicious. Oh, and I mean, I'm vegetarian and, but still there are so many, just the noodles and I mean the whole chicken and like the pig head, that was a little hard. And the turtle, I do have a vegan friend who was like, I like Tampopo, except I didn't like the turtle killing scene. And then I was that like, That oh, was yeah. rough. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I, I, as a, as a, as an omnivore, I really should come to terms with that. When I see it in a movie, I shouldn't just go like, oh, that's rough. And then go back to eating a hamburger. <laughs> I, I have to realize that's what happens with our food, but it's still like seeing it. I was like in a movie well, too. Turtles are so sympathetic. Yeah, they're definitely, I would not, I mean, yeah, just like we make these distinctions about what animals are okay to eat and what which ones we can view as food or disposable and turtles do seem i think it's just they live so long and they look so wise yeah they're they feel closer to a human in that way and dogs i feel are so emotional and so that's why i feel like they're not on the list of at least well i guess here they're not on the list yeah i can't really make too many judgments because it's just like if you're in a culture that eats meat i i feel like it's a little bit silly to to make such hard and fast distinctions about what you can and can't eat. Like, yeah. like I, I, a few years ago, there was that big scandal that one of the restaurant chains in, in England had been selling horse meat. Not, not like a huge amount. I guess it's just wherever they were getting their meat processed would use horse meat was in it. I, I get it. I get people have attachments to horses, but I'm also like, you know, cows are cute. <laughs> like they are actually very cute. They're, they're all, they're all, you know, four-legged, cute, or majestic animals. Like, if you're eating meat, either stop eating meat or just realize, like... You're taking down something that's cute or majestic. Yeah. And I just haven't made that step. I We keep thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, even eating less makes a difference. You know? It's, yeah. It's not either or. I like I like the impossible meat or the beyond. Like, we'll make a vegan a vegan lasagna. It's something I've had more of, more of a conversation about lately. Is like, well, should I do this? Because... I do like meat, but also I, I'll tell you what, it's seeing it in movies like this, like the turtle scene where I'm like, okay, if I can't, if I have this reaction to seeing it happen, like, what is it saying about me that I'm just ignoring that to go and eat something tasty? That You know what? That's exactly why I am vegetarian because I, I, I realized that I can't, I couldn't do that. Yeah. And for, and for me, I'm not saying that this has to be your reason, but for me, I was like, oh, well, if I'm not ever willing to like hunt an animal or butcher an animal, like I just, I just shouldn't be eating them. Like maybe that's me being too black and white of a person, <laughs> but for some reason I like could never resolve that question. I was like, you know, how do I, how do I justify it to myself then if I'm not willing to, to do it or like accept the fact that it happened? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I would ever answer that. No, that's, that's a, that's a similar thought that I've had. I mean, being, being Alaskan fishing was a big part of growing up. We fished a lot. Uh, Actually. I've, yeah. Same. I, I fished a lot too on the Gulf I, coast. I've gone hunting a few times, but I've not, I never actually killed anything. And gosh, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad because as a kid, I just remember going hunting and being like, Oh, what, what are we going to do if we actually see a deer? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to see a deer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just so I actually like, want to follow through on hunting. Yeah. So I guess maybe even then I should have, I should have realized that maybe this is a conversation worth having. Well, and 
actually, I don't know how far we want to go down. I guess we're going on a food tangent. It's just like the movie. Yeah, but, this um, movie is full of digressions and we can do just as many. <laughs> we can do as many as we want. Uh, fish, I have thought of eating because you can like technically humanely kill a fish where it doesn't feel anything at all. I don't know that all fish is killed that way. But if you wanted to to frame it in like a no suffering way, sometimes I thought maybe I'll go back to that because I, I do like feel some personal attachment to seafood. Like it could be a little hard to give that up. Yeah. So uh, I guess getting back to the movie, mm-hmm. I, I should say like, as hungry as this movie made me at a certain point, I started to get a little less hungry. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to, how to say it. I'll just say the descriptions of food and seeing people prepare the food very appetizing i do not like watching people eat and you get a lot like i I don't have a like disdain for it but i just think it's hard to make that look as appetizing as the actual act of eating and there's some kind of (laughs) i i have to admit the 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 sex scene with the gangster and his girlfriend i i thought that was a little gross (laughs) i i get some of it was kind of funny and i get it was supposed to be erotic but i was just like oh it's not that doesn't look good that scene is so evocative. It is. I feel like people have what I feel like people have such diverse reactions to it, but I feel like it's impossible to not react to that scene. <laughs> yeah, and especially especially when you get to the egg yolk, which is <laughs> whoa. <laughs> I I I mean, I don't want to so listeners, if you haven't seen it, this is not a <laughs> anywhere near pornographic. I think I'm making it sound like worse than it is. It's just like the act of food and like the consumption of food is sometimes like a little gross. And I, I, maybe I do have a, like a little bit of a, an aversion to that, but it is just possibly just me. That's interesting. Cause my friend that I saw it with the second time, um, she was like, this is hot. Like that scene totally worked for her. And then I think I was actually in between you and her. Like yeah. sometimes I was like, this is like really, slimy looking (laughs) I don't know it was like this mixture of like discomfort and then like extreme sensuality um I feel like that's pretty masterful in a movie to make something like where you feel it so so palpably I will I will give it that that I could recognize the the steamy nature of the the film and what was while also still being a little bit revulsed by what <laughs> what they were actually doing, yeah, um, understandably. <laughs> so I, I mean, we can we can we don't need to focus too much on that. It is just kind of like a part of this movie. But this movie is, in a way, I don't think the American version of this mo- movie would be like the American version of this movie would not be as frank in its ex- exploration of uh, of sexuality and death. And um, like the scene, it just even the scene, the way it ends with the baby being be- breastfed, I don't, I don't think that would be in the American version at all. Or if it would, it would not be a studio production. You know, this would be a, like a much smaller budgeted film. I guess one word that I, that I would assign to it is just bold, and that I think that's what I love sometimes. I love, I like when films are measured, and you can tell that they really put a lot of thought into each thing, which obviously. Obviously, there was a lot of thought put into this, but I also feel like they made some choices that were not always subtle, but they just like 100% went for it. And I guess what's coming to mind for me right now is the, the, the hobos 
the hobos singing like an angelic choir <laughs> yeah um, that, to, to say so, good night to them <laughs> it's such a it's such a charming scene though like everything about this movie i will say you say it's bold i will also i will agree it makes it takes some bold swings but i i think that this is so charming from beginning to end like it's so like uh, the guy who plays Goro is so great mm -hmm. and Tempopo is so is so lively like everybody in this movie it's just it's a it's a fun mix and uh yeah and as oh, bold as it is it's yeah. kind of like a got a lightness to it a light touch at times yeah 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 and you know what? I guess I find that refreshing as well because sometimes I feel like art house movies can be guilty of taking themselves too seriously or like all of them needing to be about the hardest things in life, you know? Yeah. And, and like, I get it. I get it. And I have watched so many movies like that and appreciate, I mean, like the hours was one of my favorites growing up and that's like super depressing. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I still, I think it's really cool that they, they took something that's, I guess this is kind of going back to the food service thing where it's something that's so taken for granted and so quotidian and like raised it to this level. And I even feel like her name, which means dandelion is sort of like a nod to that because you walk past dandelions all the time and they like proliferate themselves just like unstoppably, but we, we kind of just take them for granted. And I don't know, you don't really like stop and appreciate a dandelion the way that you do a rose. No. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, I'll admit, I actually did not write down notes for this one because I was like, oh, I've seen it. I've seen it so many times, but actually it's only two times. Oh, no, you're, you're fine. I've, uh, I'm almost the exact same way where I was like, uh, I don't know what else to say. I, I know what I'm going to say, and I've said my notes here. Oh, I do remember now one thing that I was going to say. And actually, okay, so with a film this visceral, I feel like it could stop there. But what I really liked is that we actually got a little window into... Tempopo and Goro's life that they have this like little kind of romantic offshoot with them where that actually never fully even came into being like I don't think they ever I mean I don't think they ever kissed or no no he like he like rides off and I guess the implication is there he's he's leaving and he's not going to come back but I mean he came back he he passed by already a few times he seems to live in the area yeah, so I don't know. Maybe they'll maybe they'll date. I don't know. <laughs> um, but oh, it, that, it's a nice cinematic yeah. ending, though. Yeah, I I feel like it has to happen for some reason. Um, I guess that's just the Western way. But um, uh, I I liked though that they went on a date. And sometimes I get frustrated by this in westerns, where like the protagonist, you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing because you don't know enough about them. And I think for some Western watchers, they don't care and that's fine um but i think for really good movies you need at least a little bit of exposition about who the character is or maybe not even exposition but you just need some insight into like their past or like their personality and why they're doing what they're doing because that's the whole point of watching a movie it's like you get to be a little bit voyeuristic about people's lives and you know find these things out that you normally wouldn't get to in conversation um, unless you're really close friends with someone. So I like that when they were on the date, they talked about their pasts and he talked about like, I guess I just don't know how to, to exist in a happy family or I didn't feel comfortable there. 
Yeah. And that, that to me was actually very poignant. And, um, it added this depth to it. Whereas like, there's this roaming person who wants to like stop in places and make this kind of warm, cozy, happy, um, environment that he talks about wanting, like, like my, he says, my family is miserable. So I wanted to have a warm, happy family, but I wasn't able to feel comfortable when I did have it. So it's like, he kind of ultimately creates that with Tempopo and then he leaves. And so it's like, he told you what he was going to do and then he did it. And I don't know. I just think that's, that's such a like character thing. Like it's, it's a good character consistency. And it, and it actually shows us the underpinning of like why he's making these decisions, which the movie didn't even have to do because it was already like really enjoyable. So I guess, uh, I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with the story, but it took me a while to realize that, um, that Goro's little sidekick, the guy who was on the driving with him for a while gun, that's Ken Watanabe, who's much more famous now. Like this was a very early role from him for him. I didn't even recognize him for most of the movie. Oh, is he a famous actor? I don't know who that is. Oh, Ken Watanabe now. He's like the movie I think that broke him over here was he was a uh, broken big was he was in The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise. Like he uh, he's the the Japanese lead in that movie. He's in uh, like uh, Oh, he was in Inception. Yes, Inception and the the two new American Godzillas. Uh, he was also in Pokemon Detective Pikachu. <laughs> yes. Uh yeah, he's he's kind of like he's very recognizable now but it was interesting to see him so young and that actor goro himself he was he he'd been around for quite a while he um he was in some kurosawa films he was in kagemusha and high and low and kurosawa was one of my favorite directors i really love everything he's done so that was kind of cool to see him in this yeah he's an inspiration so uh <laughs> like this happens a lot when the show where we kind of go on and on about the first movie and then now we're in the the second movie and we're, we're kind of rushing through things but we we both talked a little bit about how this movie is it's kind of hard to describe it's best to just experience it so i think well yeah and i keep thinking of things that i love about it but then i'm like oh i don't want to say it because that's going to ruin it if the person sees it <laughs> yeah maybe this one because this this episode's not going to come out from a for a couple of weeks i will probably definitely put point people towards where they can watch this movie oh. hopefully people catch up and and watch this one because I think this is a great, a great movie. This is definitely going to enter my personal canon, I guess. Oh yeah, it's in my top five now. It has, it's just nudged some others aside. And speaking of which, do you have anything more you want to say about this, or do you want to just kind of take a quick break and go right into the top five? I'm just going to say one more phrase. If you've not seen Tom Popo, then you'll understand this when you do see it old lady in a grocery store uh, Squeeze, yes squeezing yeah. fruit that's all i'll say <laughs> okay and we're back and so our theme is just kind of piggybacking off of the theme for the rest of the episode this is our top fives of food glorious food I'm going to go first. I'm going to go with a really obvious one. Like my list, you're going to see. I, I feel really kind of bad. I had such hard time picking movies because I looked it up and I'm like, oh, I haven't actually seen a lot of like food movies. So I kind of picked movies that had memorable food moments in them. And mm -hmm. uh, the first one I'm going to go with, 
is kind of silly. I'm going to go with Close Encounters of the Third Kind because oh, of wow. Richard Dreyfus and those potatoes. And I had to mention it because I don't think I have ever had, I mean, I, mean, I, I eat potatoes a lot. I love potatoes. I don't think I've ever had a plate of mashed potatoes in front of me and I haven't either started to or wanted to start carving a mountain into them and saying, this is important. This means something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I've not actually seen that movie, which is so awful. Oh, it's, I do not. I'm, I'm going to just say right now, it's not my favorite. It was a huge influence me on me as a kid. Like I just, as a kid, I loved aliens and UFOs. And so like, I, I really connected with it. I, I've seen it once or twice as an adult and it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up for me. There's so much about it that I, I just, I don't care for. Oh, okay. That makes me feel less bad. So oh, yeah. this one is, uh, could not be more different. I had the pleasure of seeing this movie on a Finn Air flight. That's Finnish Airlines. Ooh, fancy. Um, they have, yeah, they have, well, and inexpensive. They have quite a selection of Finnish movies. And so I happened upon one that was Finnish Japanese. I don't know why I, I don't, maybe Japanese food movies are just my thing. I don't know. But uh, there's one called Kamome Diner. That's the name of the movie. That actually is, now I'm realizing it, is a little bit similar to Tempovo because it's about a business that's struggling and the woman is trying to make her business better and she makes all these friends. But it's it's very different. It's not nearly as campy. Um, and it's just kind of told in these like quiet little chapters. Um, not nearly as, there's there aren't digressions of into all these different places the way Tempovo has. Um, but it's it's lovely. Like, first of all, you've just got all the Scandinavian architecture and um she just makes this coffee and these like cinnamon buns and people gather at the cafe and you hear all the little like like dink noises when she's putting down the cups and stuff and it's just like uh, it's so wonderful <laughs> i'm going to add that to my watch list i have not even heard of that movie so that sounds really good oh yeah it's a treat Okay, so you're going to sense a theme in my next one, or just with this next one, that I'm kind of, I kind of am going with food moments. Like my movies aren't necessarily about food. It's just they had memorable food moments. Mm -hmm. And I am going to pick, well, Miyazaki in general, we're speaking of <gasps> Japanese food, but I'm going to pick Howl's Moving Castle because Yay! I just watched this recently. Uh, I rewatched it. I, my oldest daughter wanted to see it and we, we rewatched it. And there are a couple of cooking scenes in that movie that just are so appetizing. Like you see them on gifts. People make compilation videos of just anime cooking because well, Miyazaki in general just makes it look so good. Like that breakfast, it's just like the eggs and the bacon and that bacon looks so thick. I, you don't even, I'm sorry, I'm, you don't eat meat, but you know what I mean? Like, well, I remember how delicious bacon was. Like, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna okay. grimace at that. <laughs> Just like the way that meals are plated and how things look when they boil in that movie, like broth boiling, it looks, or sizzling. That's so or interesting. I don't remember any of the food from that movie, but I totally believe you. Oh, uh, well, there, I'm talking generally in Miyazaki, there's a lot of food in Spirited Away as well. But uh, the one in Howl's Moving Castle is just the one I watched recently. And there's the one I remember most is the breakfast scene 
where he comes in and he just kind of makes some eggs and bacon. All right. So uh, what do you, what do you got with yours? Okay. So number two is waitress. And I forgot to mention um, my theme, your theme is kind of like moments in uh, food moments in movies. I decided to pick movies that inspired me to either make this food or appreciate this food more. So with Kamome Diner, it was about coffee and cinnamon buns and just this like uh kind of comfort like scandinavian comfort with waitress it's obviously pie right i am yeah have you, have you seen waitress i have not i have not oh another one that's that just image of the pie yeah and like pie is such a theme every she makes these pies for her different moods so it's like progressing progressing um the story and her emotions with each pie it's like this this pie is i want to i want to um divorce my husband pie <laughs> <laughs> and they just they show all of it and they show her making it and um it's also a really good story and like it's sad that the director um was murdered at a pretty young age so it's kind of like i think it's good for people to enjoy the work that she did get to make adrian shelley adrian shelley yeah that's right. Yeah. And okay. she's actually in it. So I don't know. I think it's just kind of good to like honor her work. No, that's a, that's a good, that's a good pick. That's one. I, I don't know why I've never seen it. It, it's kind of available. I should look it up and add it to my list. I just, even here in it's lockdown, a little girly. Oh, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. One of my, one of my picks in here is, is also a little quote unquote girly. My next one, you know, you said it, it's movies that kind of inspired you. I do have one movie on my list that did inspire me to make something that was in it. And this is kind of maybe an odd choice. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, the the Robert Rodriguez movie, the third one in his El Mariachi Desperado series with Antonio Banderas. Now, there is a subplot in that movie of Johnny Depp's character looking everywhere for the perfect Puerco Pabil. And once he finds the perfect Puerco Pabil, much like Pascal in Big Night, he has to kill the chef because it's just too perfect to exist. And <laughs> it looked so good. I'd never even heard of it before this movie. And Robert Rodriguez does these like little 10 minute cooking schools where he's like, he, he teaches people just how to make basic Mexican dishes. And he did one for Puerco Pabil. And so when my birthday one year, I think it was my 30th birthday actually, I basically invited everybody over. We just, I made, I had an all day taco bar and I made Puerco Babil, which itself takes all day. It's like a pretty involved dish. I mean, uh, people who are actual chefs will probably say it's easy, but I had like, what is it? I've never even heard of that. What is it? It's like pork shoulder or pork butt and it's wrapped in banana leaves and there's all these different seasonings and you basically cook it low all day. And it was great. I've only ever made it once because it was so hard. But the <laughs> say what you will about the movie, but the that scene did inspire me to go and make this dish, and it was great. Wow, I'm glad. I'm glad that that stuck with you. That that was definitely eclipsed by uh, many many of the horrific incidents of violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I didn't uh, even I didn't even remember the food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, oh, right. Sorry. I keep forgetting that we're going back and forth. Okay. So my next one is a documentary. <sighs> this one's pretty basic. Um, oh, this is also Japanese. What the heck? I don't know. There's something I didn't realize about I has, did not realize I had such a thing running here, but uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. 
of course. I haven't seen it yet, but to oh wow, there there is something about Japanese food that looks very good on camera. I don't know what it is, but you're right. Like the Japanese do have a lot of like food centric filmed entertainments that just looks delicious. Yeah, maybe um maybe because the slicing is so precise or something. Like yeah. things are sliced very beautifully. Whereas I feel like if you showed someone like make a sloppy joe, like I don't think it would really look that good. I don't think any step of that process would look good. You're right. It looks so <laughs> precise. There's something very satisfying about seeing somebody very good at being that precise. Yeah, and that's definitely that's definitely what Joe Dreams of Sushi is about. Anyone who hasn't seen it, definitely, it's so satisfying because he's just he's so devoted to this, to his craft, and um, and then of course you see amazing sushi, and it goes into like different aspects of how it's made, and then you just want to order sushi afterwards, or I guess you could try to make your own, but I've never attempted that. I feel like leave the work to someone who knows what they're doing I don't know. Uh, yeah it just also seems like sushi can go so poorly if it's not right <laughs> yeah and I, I feel like a lot of it's sourcing the fish so i don't know i guess i'm just cool with letting someone else figure that out it makes sense makes sense i definitely would be yeah um but yeah definitely big uh big foodie movie very satisfying to watch and it's just it's always cool to see someone who sacrifices and and it is so committed to to getting really good at one thing like a lot I think a lot of us want to be that way but it actually takes it's actually pretty unusual like it takes a pretty unusual lifestyle to to actually do that so kind of yeah no that, it's just that level of commitment you're right I I am in awe of it yeah yeah inspiring so my next one is um <laughs> this people who know me going to laugh when I say this because it's so obvious is Twin Peaks because oh. I associate that so much with the the food is not food it is donuts and pie and coffee but I love Twin Peaks so much it's such a humongous part of my just like taste like in, in it's so big in defining the type of things that I like in storytelling and I revisit it so often that I I frequently will marathon it and get donuts to watch while I, while watching it. I am not a coffee drinker, but I remember once getting all of my friends together and we tried to go through the entire series in one day in one sitting, and I drank a lot of coffee that night. <laughs> okay, so this is the one I changed in the middle because I was struggling to think of of any movie that had inspired me to make food that wasn't a documentary. I don't know why I thought I couldn't use documentaries. But then while we were talking, I remembered uh, Call Me By Your Name. Have you seen that? Oh, I have not yet. It's such a, ah! it's, a it's so on my list. It's so good. Um, and it's set in Italy. And so like every meal that they have is just, just looks amazing. And it's like dappled in this Tuscan sun. And it's just, oh. And there's a scene with a peach. <laughs> I'm sure you must have heard about that. Right? I've heard a little bit about the peach. I don't know what happens to the peach. Uh, um, that's that's not as that doesn't really make you want to eat peaches or, yeah, or cook okay. anything with peaches. I, I, but, I think I've I think I've gotten it. <laughs> but um, but still, like um, I'm thinking more of like the Italian food. I don't know. It just makes me. I guess the movie feels really summery because it's set over the course of this one summer in Italy, and. 
it just makes you think of like this particular feeling of summer days when you might like have a soda and it actually feels right to drink a soda and it's like I don't know or like the taste of oranges or like a fresh I don't know it's like summer food Ugh. and then it's like mixed with this like young love story so it's kind of like all of these sensual pleasures mixed together yeah. and it's just so beautiful well it, it, it has been on my list it's one I really wanted I do want to watch yeah it's also unfair that I react that way when you haven't reacted that way when I've said I haven't watched all these things <laughs> no 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 I only yeah it, it, it's fine it's fine I don't know everybody comes to things at their own time you know like yeah and like people have different tastes so you're obviously gonna take a chomp out of the things that look more interesting to you first yeah no sure. I, I I I definitely think there is a difference in the things that were that we're talking about I mean like yeah you're not gonna have once upon time in Mexico on your list I I <laughs> my inspired food list no yeah. uh, so for my last one my last one is going to be, well, it's a movie I have not seen in a long time, but it, it actually came to no my way, mind. No way, mine too. Okay, go on. <laughs> it actually came to my mind while I was looking this up, like while we were doing this, I was like, oh man, I should go back and watch Fried Green Tomatoes. <gasps> ah, I didn't even think of that. Oh, that's a great one. That movie came out, I think I was in high school and I remember renting it several times. I really liked that movie and I just haven't watched it since. And so doing this research, I was like, no, that movie, I don't like tomatoes. And just like the, like the title and the, the cooking of it all looked like great. But I, yeah, it, I remember this, like the food in that being very appetizing looking. And there's actually like one pretty noteworthy, like <laughs> making food scene, but, um, but yeah, I, I definitely need to revisit it. And this like discussion today has made me just double down on that. Like maybe I'll go and watch it tonight. Oh yeah, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. Did you see it in your childhood, you said, or in your teens? In my teens. Okay, so mine's, mine's from my childhood and I don't think I've seen it since then, but it's Peter Pan. Or no, wait, not Peter Pan, it's Hook. Why did I call it that? I wrote yeah. Peter Pan. That's <laughs> so childlike. Uh, just because of the scene with like the colorful mounds of... I don't know what it is, like the imaginary food. Yeah, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it in a long time either, but I know what you're talking about. That's a very memorable scene where they're pretending to eat. Yeah, is that the scene guess, you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, they're pretending to eat and he's like, I don't see it. And then they're like, that's because you're not, I don't know, like you don't believe in it or something. It's like one of those, like, I don't know why that was such a moral at that time of like, you need to just believe in things that you don't see. Like, <laughs> yeah. like was that some, some, um consequence of reaganomics or something <laughs> I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think it's just the obsession with maintaining childhood wonder and like the idea yeah it must be because you get this you know people need to in the 80s just need to be all about business and making money right and then that movie is just no no you need to believe all the things you believed when you were a kid that that aren't necessarily real yeah that that's the part that creates some dissonance for me because that that's in s several movies from the from the 90s where it's just like you need to believe in this myth that's been passed down to you in order for these special things to happen but also if we're all being real like this still isn't real I don't know <laughs> it's kind of strange to me oh I get but, it yeah but I do I do remember as a child like thinking that that food just looked so delicious and like 
I even like kind of get a flavor when I imagine it still, even though I don't know what that flavor is. And, and I, yeah, like, I know always what you mean. wanted to make it. Yeah, yeah. I always well, I, wanted to make that food. <laughs> I will say, I mean, this is going to be, this is, this is going to be like a really su- silly juvenile thing for me to say, but we're talking about like kid reminiscence of food and pop culture is as a kid, I used to think that the pizzas in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cartoon looked incredibly delicious. And I've never, like as a kid, I was always disappointed. I could never find a pizza that looked as good as those. You know what? I almost put Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because of the pizza. So uh-huh. I know I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Those movies define p- delicious pizza for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's like the cheese stretch or what it is. <laughs> I think it's that. It's that cheese stretch that like real cheese doesn't really do that. I mean, only I guess... cartoon cheese. Yeah. <laughs> or like I don't know, fictional cheese, I guess. Yeah. Okay. It's well. So strange. <laughs> well, hey, I. I mean, I think we're we're kind of about to the point we can wrap up now. This was a lot of fun. I, I got to really thank you for uh, for coming on, for being on the show with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for um, giving me a new movie to watch and giving me something to do during a pandemic. It was really strange to have something scheduled where I was like, oh, I have somewhere to be. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of what I'm doing here with this is keeping myself busy. It's nice to have something like focused to work on during a week or to look forward to but this was a lot of fun like i said i i'm i really appreciate it and i had a good time yeah me too do you have anything that you wanted to mention or anywhere you wanted to pe- send people like you got going on i know we can't talk but i can edit that part out if you don't want to <laughs> no it's okay uh i think the only thing i'll say let's see mm, i have some things in the works but i don't have it's been a tough year I'm proud of myself for surviving. Yeah, um, I think we should all be proud of that. <laughs> uh, I graduated with an MFA in screenwriting in May. And well, hey, that's a, an accomplishment. Yeah, I don't know. I said that really fast for some reason, but uh, <laughs> no, yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is something, but I don't have any concrete projects yet to point to, um, but hopefully that will be changing in the coming year or two. And I've just been really into ceramics as like a de-stressing slash possible side hustle. I'm looking at a collection of mugs that I made right now. Oh, nice. Maybe maybe we'll get some pictures up. No, I'd love to take pictures of them. But um, no, that all sounds good. And just just focusing on anything, staying sane, I think, this year, it, it's been tough for everybody. So I think, I mean, I think all of that sounds really good. What Wait, good what are you up to? What are you up to? I don't even, does a, does a guest ever ask you that? No, no, but I usually say it anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm basically just doing this. I mean, that that's the only visible thing that I'm doing. I'm doing lots of stuff at home, but. I gotcha. But right now, the visible thing I'm doing is this. And if people listening want to follow along, you can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. That's at Two Headed Pod. Uh, there's also a Facebook page that is probably more popular than the other two. So if you feel inclined, if you still have Facebook, you can go over there and find it. Uh, I have a little partnership with Metallic Dice Games. If you're, you know, you need any gaming dice or any dice related needs, you can head over there. My partner, Amber, has made those, um, these awesome enamel pins that they're selling. You can check those out. And if you enter the code two heads, T-W-O-H-E-A-D-S, 
at checkout, that gets you 10% off. And that'll do it for us again. Once again, Angela, thank you very much for being here. And we will talk to everybody later. Stay uh, safe. Stay not viral. Uh, yeah, yeah. But also very viral. Go viral. If that's what you want. I mean, people could go viral for a lot of the wrong reasons. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs>